National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a really interesting show for you today. We're going to discuss wargaming and simulations and how they help policymakers, military leaders, and even the interagency process to prepare for potential challenges across a, across a wide range of national security conundrums. With us to discuss this topic are two people who are very familiar with wargaming and simulations, both of whom serve at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Our first guest is Colonel Chad Jagman, who serves as the Director of Strategic Wargaming at the United States Army War College at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. He has served in the Army for 28 years in small unit leadership positions from the platoon leader level to the company commander as well as senior enterprise leadership positions from department head through to director. Our second guest is retired U.S. Navy Commander Edmund Cliffy Zukowski, Cliffy being his call sign, who as a retired naval officer serves as a, as a civilian at the U.S. Army War College. Mr. Zukowski graduated from Auburn University in 1993. He received a Bachelor of Aerospace Engineering degree and commissioned through RO, Naval ROTC. He retired in December of 2015. He was a career strike fighter naval aviator with over 2,500 hours uh, and 511 arrested landings on six different aircraft carriers. Mr. Zukowski earned his wings of gold as a naval aviator in 1996 and flew the F-18C Hornet. Gentlemen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, John. So let's get started on our discussions. Uh, uh, before we jump into it, uh, you are, I, I should tell our audience, we're pre-taping this, uh, this show on Friday, May 19th. Uh, while you are in town for the for a what's a, a simulation exercise, I guess uh, at the, at Carleton College for the next couple of days, and, and we're playing this obviously on Wednesday, uh, May thirty first uh, for the show. So uh, the the exercise will be long over by the time the show is uh, is live on the air. Uh, but uh, this is going to be a great discussion nonetheless. There's nothing that uh, is. Uh, uh, you know, dying about this uh, this topic of uh, wargaming and simulations. Uh, uh, let, let's get started. Uh, we're going to focus on the use of wargaming and simulations to educate and prepare policymakers and military leaders ahead of crises, uh, so they're better prepared to make critical national security decisions. And before we get there, uh, I want to ask the two of you a little bit more about the U.S. Army War College. W what is the U.S. Army War College? Who attends courses at that institution? And why does it matter to the average American citizen? This is a great opening topic, John. Thank you. Uh, the Army War College is the senior service college, primarily serving the Army for educating and preparing senior officers for service at the strategic and enterprise positions uh, in the Army, the Joint Force, and the nation. It was conce conceived originally by Secretary of War Elihu Root in 1901 when he laid the cornerstone at NDU, which is now the National War College to, quote, not to promote war, but to preserve peace by intelligent and adequate preparation to repel aggression, unquote. So Secretary Root uh, also served as Secretary of State and later won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, the United States Army War College has gone through a number of changes since that inception, uh, but at its core echoes Secretary Root's initial conception. So our mission is to enhance national and global security by developing ideas and educating U.S. and international leaders to serve and lead at the strategic or enterprise level. So our vision and the, our commandant's vision is to be the nation's institute of choice for developing strategic leaders and the global thought leader on strategic land power. So our program is designed so that our graduates are intellectually prepared to preserve peace, deter aggression, and compete below the threshold of armed conflict to achieve victory in war. So different than other um, colleges as you go up from commissioning sources like the Naval uh, War College or, the, or, the, or USMA, the United States Military. Yeah, so Naval Academy and, or West Point. Thank yeah. you, West Point or Naval Academy. Um, you, you find that they're f more focused on the tactical level yeah. all the way up until they get to those senior service colleges like the Army War College. And at the Army War College, then they start looking at those enterprise and strategic level decisions. So you have to, you have to educate. It, it becomes more education and less training. Yeah, okay. So a little about our student body. So we have a 10-month resident class comprising of uh, 373 students from all military and numerous government institutions and results for students in the Masters of Strategic Studies. Uh, we also conduct a two-year distance education program with about twice the number of students, 
in, the, in over the two years. So a total of about 1,200 students are going through our course. So, so a little easier to do it uh, in residence, a little harder to do it not in residence, to do it from distance, but easier to attend uh, from, non, from, di- from a distance education perspective. You don't have to disrupt your career path. Cause That's a good point. Taking a year out of your career path to go to, the, to one of the war colleges to do it in residence, uh, that that takes a whole move and everything else that goes along that's, with it. That's definitely consideration for our students and also for the Army as they select students based on their timelines. Okay. That's a good point. Uh, we, we also have a, a fellows program where students go to think tanks, universities, governmental agencies, and allied nations to study, and that's another one-year-long program. Uh, the students are competitively selected from senior U.S. and foreign military officers from all services, but we also have civilian students that our national security professionals that there are there as well. Usually about 20 years of experience is the average amount of experience for our students. Um, so we've all been through war college mm-hmm. uh, upper level training and, and I go, going back to Elihu Root's uh, statement, what we're really saying there is to avoid war, always be prepared for war, right? That's right. Yeah. So in the end, uh, the Army will always be prepared to fight and win the nation's wars along with the other services and the whole of the nation. Uh, you know, nowadays with the, the problem sets there that uh, we have militarily, we have to include all the, uh, the instruments of national power, which includes the diplomatic or informational and economic as well as the, the military. Yeah. What, what else can you tell us about the U.S. Army War College? Yeah, and another interesting part uh, is our, our body of international fellows. So when you take a look at a problem, uh, often you can't see it from different perspectives unless you have someone that has expertise. So in our case, we have 70 students, for, or, or we have 83 students from 70 different countries that are part of the, the, the War College student body. So in that seminar of about 18 students, you'll have three international fellows that provide a, a totally different perspective than you would get as an American. So it's very exciting about what we can do. Whenever we look at, you know, a, a problem with a specific country or region, often, you know, to explain the complications and complexities politically or the capabilities and capacity militarily uh, or socially, like the drivers of instability or informationally, you know, you have to have those other perspectives. Yeah. Uh, when I was at the Naval War College, uh, 2003, 2004, uh, there was a Finnish Navy captain who was studying there. And uh, he eventually wound up becoming the commander of the Finnish Navy. And what I found, uh, what, what I realized when I was attending the War College is that all these foreign senior leaders, foreign uh, senior officers that come to the service war colleges, wh- what we're really doing is building trust. So in times of crisis, when you cannot surge trust, you can surge everything else, but you can't surge trust, we've already established a really close working relationship with those senior officers from other militaries around the world. I don't know if you can put a price on, on that. No, it's very difficult. Uh, I, I don't even know if, you, if you'd want to. And, you know, try to make something intangible. Tangible is just a difficult problem. But the Army War College, along with the other student service colleges, have uh, ways of recognizing those uh, international fellows that come and w- work with us for a year and learn our perspectives as we learn theirs. And then we recognize them when they become senior leaders in their their um, military institutions. Yeah. So broadly speaking, what is wargaming and how is it different from simulation exercises? Yeah, this is, so, so this is a, a question that's always discussed in the community. Um, and it depends, again, we talked about perspectives internationally. This is, depends on your perspective um, from where you're approaching the problem. So if you look at Joint Publication 5.0, which is, is the planning, uh, Joint Operational Planning, uh, a uh, simulation is, or a, a, a war game is a representation of conflict or competition in a synthetic environment. Uh, in which people make decisions and respond to the consequences of those decisions. So in this case, um, I like to look at three major uh, decision support tools for the enterprise and strategic leader. And the three tools are really wargaming, exercises, and analysis. And so when we see the concept of of, uh, simulations, it actually... When we see simulations in a political context, often it's what the military calls exercises. So you'll see an overlap between those, um, those, uh, that terminology. So definitions are very important when you're talking about wargaming versus uh, simulations. So um, if you go beyond the academic use of simulations, really a simulation is a model uh, executed over time. So 
modeling and simulation really falls under the analysis branch of those three branches, uh, that the uh, three major decision support tools. So how do you know which decision support to, to use? This is a very important okay. part of uh, figuring out what should you use. Often you'll find that um, when we're trying to figure out what to do, you have to have the right tool to do it. So what I'd ask your listeners, this might be a good point, grab a piece of pen or get, grab a paper and a, a paper and a pencil or a pen. And what I want you to do is just put the paper down, pick that pen or pencil up, put it in your hand, raise it above your hand, head, and I'm going to ask you to do something that you've done many times before. Very easy thing for you to do. You've probably done it a hundred times. But before you do that, I want you to put that pen in the other hand. And then I want you to try to write your name with your other hand. So if you're right-handed, we want you to do it with your left-handed. That's right. Okay. <laughs> so you're right-handed, do it with your left hand. If you're left-handed, do it with your right hand. And, uh, you know, take a few seconds. And while I'm talking about this, uh, you'll see, uh, unless you're ambidextrous, which uh, I find it, it doesn't work very well with, with people that are ambidextrous. <laughs> but uh, what you'll find is, you know you have the right tool, but you don't have the training and education for that part. Your brain knows how to do it but that your, your instrument that you're using can't actually do it as well as the one that was properly trained and educated. So this is the same thing with wargaming or simulations or exercises, that you have to understand the intent behind a wargame, an exercise, or an uh, analysis or simulations. Um, because if you don't know the intent behind it, you can't design something that will get after that. So in the case of an academic uh, exercise or simulation that you called it, um, you know, you're trying to get out certain learning outcomes. And in those learning outcomes, um, an, an exercise is a great tool to use because the focus is really on that, is on the experience of the players of the simulation. Whereas for a war game, you're focused on the decisions. So it's not focused on the players in the game getting the experience out they need. It's more about what the decision maker needs to make that decision. And so you design... Uh, it's sort of like if you think about design of experiments, if you design a war game or design a simulation or you're trying to use analysis, you've got to use the right tool. And then all the people that are using that tool have to know what they're doing. So that, the, the critical piece, what I think I'm hearing from you, is that uh, you have to have people who really understand wargaming and simulations uh, who are going to lead those things so the people who are participating in it actually get something out of it. That's right. That's okay. exactly right. Okay. Uh, so I, I mentioned that the two of you are, uh, Colonel Jagman, uh, Mr. Zukowski, that you're in town here in, in Northfield for uh, something called the, the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise, uh, or, or the ISNI, as it's often called. Uh, the ISNI is why you're here in Northfield at Carleton College. You're going to uh, oversee or manage a, a two-day exercise for a bunch of undergraduate students. How is this visit to Carleton College different than most, or perhaps almost all, of your usual visits to higher education institutions around the country. So, uh, John, with the ISNI, um, it's a program that started actually 20 years ago um, at Georgetown. and was run by a U.S. Army War College fellow, uh, like Chad had mentioned about, uh, you know, students that are studying in other institutions. And it's a, as you mentioned, international strategic crisis that's going on. And so typically we target um, master's level programs that deal with international relations or public policy. And so our student body tends to be a little bit older. Maybe uh, they've worked out in the real world uh, before coming back for their master's to help improve their career. Um, and so we have folks that are, you know, trying to get into that international relations world. And so they use this exercise as, as a capstone event uh, to prepare them for, uh, you know, their future work. Coming to Carleton, having an undergraduate class here, is a little bit different. Um, you know, students might not know exactly what they want to do when they graduate. Some of them might not be studying international relations or public policy. They're just taking a poli-sci class. Um, so we've seen this with one other school where we do undergraduates, and it tends to just add a different energy to the exercise. Um, I won't say that it's not a, a, any less serious than it is at other schools where they're studying this for their future careers, um, but I think you get a creative view of how they attack problems and in our simulation we use frozen conflicts from around the world the one we're using this week is on the south china sea so all of the competing claims between china malaysia indonesia vietnam and how do we resolve that um, and so being here at carlton this is actually our first time doing it um, but we were invited uh, two years ago to come to the school 
because Carleton has been sending a contingent of students up to the University of Minnesota at the Humphrey School when we do the exercise there. And over the last, I don't know how many years, uh, seven, eight years, those students have performed excellently. And uh, their professor, you know, reached out to us and said, hey, we'd like to do that here. And so, you know, after basically a year and a half of planning, we arrived yesterday to, you know, hit the ground running today. (laughs) So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be exciting to see. I think there's around 60 students and uh, we have mentors that are coming in that are all professionals in their own respective rights, either foreign service officers, retired ambassadors um, and and other professionals that help mentor the students through this two day, you know, crisis negotiation exercise. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other uh, frozen conflicts that you have uh, as as exercises, uh, simulation exercises in your in the hopper there? Yeah, so we uh, one we have is the Korea Peninsula, so North and South Korea. We call it the Six Party Talks, which was an old format that China, Russia, United States, Japan, and both Koreas got together. We do Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an area between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Um, so with the fall of the Soviet Union back in the 1990s, um, that became a hotbed. We also have the island of Cyprus, so the uh, Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots, the conflict that's been happening for hundreds of years, but uh, at least since 1973. And then the last one we have is on uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which is in the northern regions of India, with some parts in China and Pakistan, and how um, you know that conflict has gone on since the British colonial days, and then with uh, the Pakistan-Bangladesh independence. Um, that subsequently followed from that. So, you know, some really neat areas that uh, sometimes the students don't know a lot about, so the exercise provides them with a little bit of a background on, you know, regional studies, but there's enough history in all of these that, um, you know, the real professionals have been trying to solve them for years and they haven't. So it allows us to simulate with a bunch of students and see whether they can come up with creative solutions to these problems. Uh, so, Colonel Jagman, you, you, you are the Director of Strategic Wargaming at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, the, the ISNI exercise is one of the many things that you oversee uh, in your in your department or your directorate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is the Army War College getting out of this? So, that, that's a very good question. So, uh, a piece of this is we try to um, help our students understand perspectives. So, there's civil-mill relations side. And so we have to understand the perspective of the people, the Congress, of a number of different pieces when we're trying to incorporate an exercise. And so we can bring this information. A great example would be how Cliffy used the Arctic scenario to bring students, JLAS, ISNI, different pieces together, if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, so with it in my research, I I didn't mention that, uh, about which scenario. We have one on the Arctic. It's been uh, going on for, uh, we're in our second year on it. the research that I conducted to write the scenario, we ended up passing around throughout the War College, and other entities have used it either as a reference or a starting point for their own uh, refined research. And then step forward a year after that scenario was developed, and the U.S. Army was looking to do an exercise about the Arctic. And here we had you know something on the shelf that you know looked at the different nations that were represented in that scenario and the real-world issues that they were contending with. And so the war game designers use that scenario to talk with the army about, hey, this is what's going on in the Arctic. How do you want to set up this war game um, utilizing that information? Another thing that we also find with the ISNIs, um, and it's kind of one of those secondary or you know tertiary effects, is that a lot of students have never actually met a military person. Um, and so with that, now they look at, you know, Colonel Jagman, or look at myself as a retired, uh, you know, Navy officer, and they get to interact with us for a few days. And uh, Chad will be wearing his uniform proudly today, and they'll see that we're not, you know, robots, and we're not, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to, you know, automatons and want to just kill everything. That yeah. you know, we have families, we have lives, personalities, and so you know, it gives us an opportunity to kind of showcase that you know we're normal people. Um, we do have this passion for our, you know, our country, and also passion for our service. Um, that we work for, and it just, you know, provides that thing, so maybe that student later on, they might consider joining the military, or, you know, maybe they'll have a slightly different view if the government has to utilize the military in in recognizing that, hey, those are normal people, and I've met a couple of them, and, you know, maybe they can have some compassion or understanding of what the work uh, we're being called to do. If I could follow up, John, so uh, what Cliffy said is just really uh, highlighted 
uh, from the school side what they get. And then you asked me, well, what does Army War College get? Well, we don't have a lot of uh, interaction with ambassadors, retired ambassadors, people that have served in foreign service office a lot. So, um, and when you're in your operational units, you don't get a chance to talk to, to people that are. So, but when you come to these schools, a lot of the international relations schools, public policy, they have um, folks on staff that are retired ambassadors, foreign service officers, et cetera, that you, that you can glean insights for. One of our, one thing we use, uh, uh, you know, our connections for is when we're trying to, to choose the next set of colonels in the Army to be brigade commanders. We have them uh, go through a process where they are uh, gone through the ringer on, hey, are they are ready for these strategic level uh uh, problems and who's better to bring in new strategic level problems but a foreign service officer but an ambassador but someone from outside of the military where they have to consider all those elements uh, national instruments of power yeah I, I'd say uh, both of you hit the nail on the head with this uh, this this topic of civil military relations uh, I think in our country uh, because we have had a volunteer military for so long now uh, that there's a ever shrinking number of uh, members of our society who actually consider careers in the military. And we've lost that connection between the civilian society and the military force and why it matters to have a strong uh, military and some of the best and brightest to, to join the military. Uh, I think what, you, what the ISNI does, because I've, I've you know, participated in this a number of times, uh, is that it introduces uh, a lot of students to the interagency process and to the fact that there's some very difficult international challenges out there, and the military does not want to go to war, <laughs> trying to that avoid war at, at all possible, You're if right. at all possible. And so uh, the negotiation process that takes place is to try and teach people how vital it is to invest in diplomacy and uh, you know, non-kinetic uh, 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 solutions to these challenges. That's right. Yeah, we you know, learn in our uh, studies that you know, when diplomacy fails, warfare happens. I mean, right. you know, there's famous quotes out there. I won't uh, misquote them, but, you know, none of us want to go to war. No. And uh, having this exercise that we, you know, just were talking about, definitely, uh, you know, we impress that upon them that, you know, talking, meeting again someday is better than meeting again on a battlefield. That's right. It's, it's sort of the exercise of the tools of national power, and we talk about that a lot on, on this show. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Colonel Chad Jagman and Mr. Ed Zakowski, and we're talking about wargaming and simulations. They are both members of the U.S. Army War College. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, let's dive a little bit more into uh, simulations first, and then I want to tackle wargaming. When we talk about simulations, can you give us some examples of the kinds of simulations that exist uh, in the U.S. government, including inside DOD? How, how do simulations work? What kinds of tools are needed to effectively manage a simulation? And what are participants actually learning as they go through a simulation? Right. So at the, at the tactical level, often simulations can happen at the systems level. So you could have simulations of how someone operates a tank, drives a tank, fires a tank round. And then they move up from that level to planning at the tactical level, and you have a simulation uh, software that helps uh, staffs. What we would call, although it's simulation software, it's often done in the context of a command, a command post exercise or an exercise where the staff is actually exercising what they would do during a, a, uh, a combat operation. Uh, one, one simulation which uh, we call uh, a, a, the joint land-air Sea space program is something that Cliffy's been a part of for quite a long time, and it's probably a great example of, of what a simulation could be. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, when we get into simulations in this, uh, JLAS is the, uh, sorry, we're full of acronyms in the military, <laughs> yeah. as you know. Um, JLAS puts students in a position that they might never be in, such as a combatant commander playing a four-star general or, or admiral out there. But over a period of time, they play that role. They try to simulate what that uh, commander would do in a conflict, um, and they get that experiential learning. It allows them, you know, we kind of call it a flu vaccine. You know, it gives you a little taste of what the real world's like so that when you leave the war college, in this case, you might get thrown into a position and have to understand what that commander is going through. 
And now when you're in that situation, you fall back on that flu vaccine, and now your body can fight the flu when it actually gets it. Right. I know it's a you know silly way of looking at it, but it's putting somebody in the simulation so that they can get the experience of the decisions that need to be made, the interactions that they need to have, and what kinds of information they might need to pull from. And so when they leave that simulation, they have that base knowledge, and they go out to the real world, you know, and whatever their next job is, and now they go, okay, it's not just me. I need to be able to pull information from these types of sources. I need to interact with these types of people, and these are the types of decisions that might have to be made. I've already experienced that at a small level. And so uh, our JLAS process is actually about a eight-month, um, you know, well, six to eight months for the students. And every couple of weeks, they're doing something involved in the exercise, and it just keeps building and building until they finally have to reach a crescendo. With a, We have a one-week um, collective phase where we bring all the students together, and they have to deal with the problems. And so that simulation um, really teaches somebody how to analyze the world around them so that when they go out, they now have those tools in their kit bag to analyze the world around them and help their commanders that they'll be working for and also help their subordinates understand what's going on. So the, the simulation provides a framework for them to learn. Um, and what it also does in this case, um, it utilizes the schooling that they're getting, the education from the classroom, and now they're getting to apply it. So when you hear that theoretical um, you know, concept or you hear this is how the Army runs, well, now you have to put it into action. And so it, it becomes an incubator, a laboratory for them to take those concepts and put them into action in a controlled environment. Sort of a sort of like medical school. See one, do one, teach one. <laughs> no, exactly. And you know, we we have many examples that have you know, folks have come back to us and they said, you know, I took the elective uh, exercise. You know, it was fantastic, but I didn't realize what I learned until I got into this command. And you know, this person left the job and I was promoted into the position. And oh my gosh, here I am doing it. And boy, I fell back on those things that I learned. And I didn't feel like I was completely new to the job. And, you know, if you can do that in any position, no matter what it is in civilian world, or, <laughs> right. you know, if you kind of understand what the job is yeah. before you get into it, um, it helps. And, you know, the, the program has been very successful over the years. has been um, we have this JLS elective, not only is the students that choose it or what happens to them, but we have a larger portion of flag and general officers that have been promoted out of that course than our regular population out of the war college. And um, so, again, it, it, I don't know whether it's JLAS, whether it's just the type of people that take it, but it, it's given them some of those tools to strategically and critically think about uh, problems. And they're doing it at a lieutenant colonel and colonel's level. So, you know, now that they're, you know, flag and general officers, they're hopefully falling back on some of those skills they learned. So is JLAS uh, more broadly incorporating sort of uh, the inter the interagency approach and all tools of of, uh, of national power? Is that kind of what is being required of the students who take that? Yes, and this exercise uh, elective is done with all of the work senior war colleges, and each of them play different roles based on their own expertise. But we deal with interagency, uh, so Department of Homeland Security, State Department. And then our own uh, Office of uh, uh, Defense, Secretary of Defense, and then we get into the military aspect of it. So we play the Joint uh, Chiefs of Staff, we play the different combatant commands such as AFRICOM or UCOM, uh, SOUTHCOM, those types of uh, major roles. And the students are playing those key positions. Um, you know, the only non-student position is the President of the United States. <laughs> uh, so they do all of the, the commanders, the directors, you know, the secretaries. Um, and we have supporting documentation, a world 10 years in the future. So we discuss every country. You know, we have the scenario pieces, and then we provide you know, news clips, intelligence reports. And this goes on starting in September and goes all the way through April or May. Wow. And it's, it's a huge effort. We had about 150 students last year, and there's about 100 people behind the scenes that are working, whether it's faculty that are actually teaching or we have what we call white and green cells, so people that will receive questions you know, what is Canada thinking of? And we will figure out what's the right answer, either on how Canada really would hand, you know, answer this or react to this, but also how would it fit into the game scenario to, to allow the game to move forward. And so it's, uh, it's quite a huge effort. But again, 
it gives those students that experiential um, opportunity so that when they step out of the uh, the classroom, you know, they understand the world in a, in a better way. So what, what about wargaming? How, how different is wargaming from simulations? Uh, my, my guess is, is that uh, it's significantly different than the simulation approach because you're really trying to execute combat operations in a wargame. Is that, is that how we look at it? So, again, the wargaming is about the decision. So okay. if, uh, if the simulation is about the experience for the student or for the player, the wargame is more about the decision. So instead of bringing in students or bringing in people that are learning their job, you bring in experts. So you bring in the experts. The players might be the people that are making the decision. The players may be the staff that's executing the decision or uh, p- developing options. It's really, Wargaming is more about developing options. So it's looking at comparison of alternatives. It's looking at analysis of options and option uh, uh, development, option support for the senior commanders. So I think the, the major difference would be how you, why you, de- what you design it for, and then if the design is about the decision and the decision maker, it's a totally different uh, approach than designing something for uh, someone that's trying to learn their job. How, how different are the, the needs in the way of tools so, to do these two things? So sometimes, it depends on the level, sometimes tools are, are very similar. In, in a war game, you'll have a white cell. A white cell is, called, is like a control cell. Okay. There's like, often, they're like, like referees. Right, so adjudicators, people that uh, take in what the player's decisions are and decide... You know, a player wants to play in a certain way, and the red team, the, the adversary, the, the opponent, uh, wants to do a different plan. When those plans interact, there's something that happens. Right. <laughs> and that white cell tries to figure out what would actually happen or what is the range of things that could happen. And the results of those war games provide very good insight to the decision-making process for that commander to decide something different than he, he or she otherwise would have. Okay. Uh, we need to take just a, a short uh, break, about 45-second break, to recognize our, our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back on uh, National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Uh, we have uh, Colonel Chad Jagman and uh, Mr. Uh, Ed Zukowski, from, both from the U.S. Army War College, and we're here talking about wargaming and, uh, and simulations. Uh, gentlemen, how long has wargaming been around, and how is it used today in the Department of Defense to educate and prepare military leaders for conflict, or perhaps even more importantly, for deterrence efforts to avoid conflict in the first place? Who wants to start? I'll start. <laughs> you you uh, got this, Chad. Okay, thanks. So... Uh, I see wargaming as it, as it, at its roots as really the conditional tense in language. So if you say something like, what would you do if X, Y, or Z? Those are the things that commanders are doing in their head, thinking through problems. And so from the, from the inception of the first decisions, in the case of mil- military wargaming, in the, uh, you know, the first military decisions that were made, it's really about comparing those possibilities to make that decision. So my contemporaries might disagree with me, but I see it as that conditional tense is the, is the, the root of it. So in military wargame design, uh, a rigidly adjudicated wargame was originally presented uh, as a gift to the King of Prussia in 1812 by von Reitzwitz. It did not take on. However, uh, the king and his family loved to, loved to play the game. Uh, but von Reitzwitz's son continued using the game and eventually caught, on, uh, caught the attention of Prince Wilhelm. Uh, Reitzwitz, the son, is credited with the invention of professional wargaming system called Kriegspiel, mm. uh, which was the first wargame as a serious tool used for training and research by the army. And that system, both from the rigid, rigidly adjudicated to the loosely adjudicated ga- uh, uh, game, is still carried on today. Uh, at the Army War College, which can, was... Can, from, can I oh, interject please? real quick? So that was the development of the, of the General Staff Corps. That's what, correct. And that's really where all professional military education starts, that's right? A very, that the Prussians are, are, are known for that, yes, for contemporary military. That's correct. Okay. So the Army War College, which was founded in 1901 that I mentioned earlier, 
um, you know, supporting war plans and war gaming was an integral component of the student effort. So back when there was a, uh, uh, before the development of the headquarters DA, and when we did not have the uh, combatant commands, who was doing those war plans? Well, students at the Army War College were. And so that happened uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, the, the Naval War College is, is, is as a, uh, you probably know, uh, is very well known for especially interwar um, uh, war gaming, which we might get to into in a little bit. But uh, currently, the students compete against each other in a multi-domain operation. So now, um, when we think about operations, we for a long time thought of uh, land, uh, air, sea uh, battle. Uh, but now, the incorporation of space, cyber, electronic warfare, um, AI, uh, additional technologies is, is becoming important. And, and how we frame the environment and how we frame the threat is very important to how you're going to uh, conduct operations and so therefore how you will wargame it. Where, where do you see wargaming headed in the future? I mean, does modern technology uh, fundamentally change how wargaming and simulations are done or how they're managed? Yeah, so that's that's a interesting question. Uh, I've thought about it, but uh, it's hard to know the future. That's one of the yeah. the problems. Uh, wargaming is great for looking into the future. So maybe we should wargame how you can use future technology, sure. which we do with Army Futures Command. So Army Futures Command does a number of um, excursions on a, a number of joint warfighting concepts and see how the Army can uh, use those future technologies. Um, I, I see that it will have a, a a profound impact on professional wargaming, and we're trying to take it, leverage it at the Army War College. Yeah, John, you know, we talked about JLAS earlier. One of the things that we're looking to incorporate is artificial intelligence. Okay. Or actually uh, utilizing that technology to help us with presenting the simulation uh, to the students, but also in that adjudication process. So since we are in that exercise uh, simulation, we're playing 10 years in the future. We've developed scenarios, so there's certain things that aren't currently happening in 2023, but in 2033, we're hypothesizing that they will happen. Um, and with that, we can use AI to help us manage the scenario, um, help develop the scenario, and we can also input our documents into it so they can reference it and provide input to the students, whether it's a news article, um, you know, an intelligence uh, thing, but also when the adjudication, so that process of figuring out where we should go based on the students' inputs or the red team inputs, again, the adversary, um, utilizing that AI system to be that initial adjudication. We still have the professionals in the room that can look at it, but with this world that's going on, think of the hundreds or thousands or millions of things happening at any one moment, Sometimes it's overwhelming for one group of people to understand all those things where we can use this tool that can pull in from our own documents that we've created and also, you know, the world writ large's documents to go, okay, we think that this would be a logical outcome. And so we've done some tests on it, and uh, they're using multiple AI systems all linked together um, to help us with this process. But this summer we're going to have a workshop uh, for JLAS to look at how we can incorporate AI to give us those tools um, to provide a better simulation. So the students are you know, um, able to get better information, a better quality, and uh, also faster mm -hmm. um, a way to provide them with information. So it's, it's pretty amazing to see how AI can um, you know, be incorporated. And then the other thing we're looking at this uh, crisis negotiation exercise is to use AI to help us develop the scenarios, again, to find those niche things that maybe in my research I couldn't find or don't have the expertise in. Um, you know, if the literature is out there, AI can help develop it. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's going to be exciting times here in the next little bit as AI, you know, gets further refined as it becomes a tool for everyone. Um, you're going to see wargaming and simulations utilizing it a lot, I think. Yeah, I think the Army is, is really leveraging uh, the most exciting thing that I see right now in education is human AI teaming, so the intelligence augmentation that's, that Cliffy's talking about, digital assistance, large language models, machine learning and to help with national lang natural language processing tasks. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, OpenAI uh, released ChatGPT, I think it was 3.5 or something like that, back in... Uh, in the late fall, November or something like that. And it's, I mean, it's a revolutionary technology in a very, very short period of time. 
Uh, and so much so that all of the major tech companies are trying to compete with OpenAI and the investment that Microsoft uh, ma made into that company. Um, and we, what I'm hearing mostly is about, you know, you, you're looking at AI from the perspective of how does it support the wargaming and simulation process, decision tools, and things like that. How, how might, I mean, you and I, Cliffy, are, are both old retired Navy commanders. Uh, you're coming up to the end of your Army career, Colonel Jagman. Uh, the young officers who are coming into the military today, what do you, I mean, what do we, what do the two of you see is the impact of AI on war fighting, actual war fighting? And can we game that out in, in a war gaming scenario? You, you can game it. So to tackle the, the latter part of that, uh, there's been uh, some interesting games done where they've played an AI, especially when a game is done, not in person, obviously. Mm -hmm. You don't know that an AI is playing against you. They've played several games where an AI would compete against humans, and they found with when there was one AI and every all the other players, let's say six or seven other players were human, that the AI wins about 85% of the time. <laughs> and I think that that might be, uh, you know, this was a commercial game called Diplomacy uh, that, that uh, they, they tested this out not, not that long ago, so it was a commercial game. But uh, pretty big number, 85. Uh, my interesting piece would be, what if we had one human and six AIs? Who, who wins? Would the human then win because he's the difference? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah. Or would he just get crushed or she get crushed? I'm yeah, that sure. speed of decision-making that is. the AIs have is, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how it employs. You, you well, have something to say. Yeah, you know, you had mentioned the, the young officers that are coming in or the young, um, you know, soldier, sailor, I mean, Marine, you know, Coast Guardsmen. I think they're going to be more up on the technology as, you know, kind of we've become the old crusty, uh, you know, <laughs> commander, as, as, as I think you alluded to. Uh, he's crustier than I am. But uh, with that, they're going to be more apt to wanting to use it, I think, and not as scared of the technology. Um, but we're also seeing developments in autonomous vehicles right. and utilizing a form of AI to make decisions on the battlefield. And they're testing that in a lot of ways. So how do we use AI, how do we control AI, but as Chad mentioned, in the Army War College, we kind of use IA, intelligence augmentation. Okay. So how do we provide that information to the trigger puller, to the decision maker? And utilizing AI, I think, is going to become incorporated more and more, and whether it's a standalone system that, say, the military develops that has our information in it, or whether it's something that reaches out to the global information network, if you can provide that commander or that trigger puller with the best real-time decision-making information, hopefully they can make the best decision out of it. Mm -hmm. And we always call about getting inside the decision loop of our enemy. Well, if you're having information and um, intelligence coming to you faster, you can assimilate it, you can act upon it. If you can do that faster than your enemy, then you can make decisions that will affect the ultimate outcome of a battle. And potentially, utilizing AI before the battle even begins, mm -hmm. you know, and, and allowing a solution to come out before triggers need to be pulled. And, and I think there's so many areas that AI can incorporate and, again, give that decision maker or that trigger puller the right information at the right time can hopefully prevent conflict from happening. Right, right. Yeah, the deterrence piece is critical, right? I mean, if, if it's sort of the porcupine strategy. <laughs> Nobody wants to attack a porcupine. Uh, so if you can deter war, that's far better than having to fight an actual war. And if AI can help us do that, that's a, that's a great thing. It brings up a good point about AI in that when you look at the, the, the kill chain process, um, wherever you have humans in the loop, it's going to slow down. AI is going to be faster, right? That's right. So it brings up an ethics question, right? How do we, wh where are humans in the future decision cycle for targeting? Yeah. Where do they make decisions? When? Or do we need to put humans on the front end to help program the algorithms. They make the decisions to program the algorithms to tell what they can do or not do. Yeah, we've had a couple of shows uh, over the last uh, two and a half years where we talked a little bit about uh, you know, the autonomous operations of, uh, of, of combat-related vehicles, uh, UCAVs, uh, Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicles as an example. Uh, at, at what point do we feel like uh, giving uh, you know armed platforms true autonomy and connect them together through distributed computing, uh, give them the capability to cooperative threat engagement where they, the, the machines themselves, decide how to engage the enemy, and finally give them the authority to 
fire their weapons when they are ready to do it, not when we say yes or no. Uh, that is a, that is a revolution in military affairs right there when we get to that point. Yeah, I think that last part you talked about, we just briefly touched over, that's the, the, that's the linchpin. Yeah. We have to figure that part out because all the other parts are going to happen. Yeah, or they're kind of already. Or already, they already ha- or yeah, have happened. They, they <laughs> kind of are. Yeah. yeah, and it's the it is the it is the major debate right now. Mm. I think of the modern military of what how much true uh, lethal uh, autonomy do we give to these unmanned platforms? Mm-hmm. Well, you run into you know if it becomes autonomous vehicles fighting autonomous vehicles. Okay, your your stuff is breaking my stuff, but at some point it's going to be whoever is winning that is now going to affect the population that they're fighting against. And that's, that's right. you know, that, yeah. that's the challenge. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Colonel Chad Jagman and Mr. Ed Zukowski, both from the U.S. Army War College. And we're talking about wargaming and simulations. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so I think, gentlemen, I might might be valuable for people to think about how wargaming has been used in the past to successfully decide how to deal with uh, with current crises, current situations in the world. Uh, maybe that'll give our listeners a better sense of why war games happen, even even it's something as simple as a tabletop war game done by senior leaders or policymakers. Uh, I'm, I'm a retired naval officer. I attended the U.S. Naval War College, the U.S. Navy's equivalent to the Ar- U.S. Army War College. Uh, I'm familiar with naval war gaming. Uh, war Plan Orange was the name of a war plan uh, that we had with Japan in the Pacific Theater. It was developed long before Japan ever attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941. Uh, the, the plan actually went back many years prior to the beginning of World War II. It was, a, it was one of those things with sort of a contingency war plan. It was de- developed because of multiple war games run by the U.S. Navy that assumed the U.S. stood alone against an imperial Japan, and much of the War Plan Orange remained relevant throughout the campaign in the, in the Pacific theater that led to Japan's unconditional surrender in August of 1945. Uh, based on that historical fact, what would you say to our listeners about the relevance of wargaming, and, and maybe simulations too, that are run today at the service war colleges and elsewhere? How valuable are these things for our national security decision makers and our military leaders? Very valuable. Uh, you bring up a great difference between the services on the value of wargaming. Uh, often I hear Navy interwar planning efforts between World War I and World War II, uh, Orange specifically, um, you know, to argue that wargaming is predictive in nature. Uh, if you do enough of it, it becomes predictive. Um, but, and, and really the only real surprise to the Navy was really the use of kamikaze pilots, mm-hmm. uh, which was, although briefly considered, was not wargamed. And so they were surprised in that way. So, but for me, I think predictive is going a little too far with what a war game can do. Uh, I would modify this takeaway this way. So Dwight Eisenhower said in prepare, quote, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indepe- indispensable. Oh, Pretty yeah. famous quote he has said. Yeah. Uh, war game is a critical component of military planning. It's part of military planning. So my corollary is that war games may be insightful, but war gaming is indispensable. And so in that, the services agree that the wargaming is indispensable to planning, right? The more different contingencies you look at, the less you'll be surprised by uh, different conti- conditions and what decisions you'll, be, you'll need to make. Just like uh, Cliffy was mentioning about the flu, I like to, to think about it like a gym. So how do you get stronger? Well, you go to the gym, you do reps. You want to get, get a lot stronger, less reps, more weight. You want to be able to do more, l- less weight, more reps. Well, this is decision reps. That's what the that's what war games do for you. Okay. Yeah. One of the other things, you know, the military has developed enough in understanding war gaming that they have specialty officers, folks that are simulations officers, folks that uh, operational research analysts, which Chad is one, so they can look at that information that's out there. So, you know, with that, um, those decisions that a commander goes through a war game, you know, in any of the services is going to help them understand and their senior leaders above them and their subordinates understand their process, their mind, uh, where it's going and how they're going to approach something. And so having these multiple reps over years and years of doing exercises and simulations allows staffs that work for a commander to understand their intent and allows that commander to go through those reps. And even though they might not (laughs) fully know what's going to happen in the next conflict, they've been through enough perturbations of it that when something different happens, they already have that process. They already have 
the procedures in place and they can pull a strategist or a simulations officer or whatnot to come to their staff and advise them and then they can move forward on you know this change in information change in tactics and they're more adaptable and then hopefully that again provides an advantage on the battlefield and we've seen that over and over with just using simulations and war games to get commanders staffs and the trigger pullers to understand the environment that they're working in and make the best decisions you know when they're confronted with them mm-hmm. so it's, it's very powerful um, and our military has really embraced it over the years i mean everything from you know an aircraft simulator which you can do a multi you know aircraft battle right um you know you're sitting in some room somewhere watching blips on a screen come at you to when you actually strap on the airplane and go out there and try to do it um you've seen it now a dozen times a hundred times before you go do it and it's the same for strategic leaders you know they're getting those decisions you know hundreds of times and getting their mindset in the right frame so that when something happens, they can act upon it. So we, we, we know that uh, there's a huge value for, for those of us in the military who do it. Uh, it was fascinating. when I read in the newspaper uh, not too long ago that uh, Representative Gallagher from our neighboring state of Wisconsin uh, brought together a whole bunch of members of the U.S. House of Representatives to run through a scenario uh, over Taiwan. And they were considering all of the ramifications of uh, a Chinese provocation to invade and seize Taiwan. Uh, and I know for a fact, uh, you, you probably, as a, as a fellow naval officer, you know that we've dealt with this thinking through, what do we do about China invading Taiwan? Because that's a no-kidding Navy war. Uh, the Army is probably not going to invade <laughs> mainland China, but, uh, but the U.S. Navy is going to have to try and uh, help defend Taiwan if that's what our political leadership chooses to do. I, I think what we're gaining from those things is a sense of what needs to happen ahead of time to make Taiwan such a difficult uh, military problem that diplomatic and economic opportunities are explored on China's part, on Beijing's part, so that they don't choose to go to war. Is it, I mean, do we see that as a critical part of the wargaming process to figure out, uh, wargaming and sim- simulation process to figure out how to avoid conflict? Is that even more important than the war gaming? Definitely. At the strategic level, a number of our war games are about deterrence, about de-escalation, about uh, the um, using, we use what's called a matrix game to bring different uh, world perspectives around a table about a certain topic area and look at those elements of instruments of national power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic, to see what the right approach might be. And we work out through either a narrative, through, you know, consequences of different actions to try to to get after exactly what you mentioned. I, I like this point you brought up about, I think that was the Center for New American Security war game with the member of Congress. Okay. So I had an opportunity to talk with one of the lead game designers for that series, Dr. Ed McGrady, who provided an interesting talk at a symposium on Pacific Wargaming in March. Um, and what I thought most interesting about this war game is that sitting members of Congress were not observers, but rather the players in the game. And so that's a very different war right. game, right? right? So uh, we've all, we, all, all, we often have senior leaders uh, come, four-star generals, come and w- w- see our games. They get out briefs, but it's not as often that you get a chance for a day, a two-day, three days with a senior leaders or congressmen, you know, even a different level, uh, to play your game and actually sit in the seat. So in this way, um, you know, I would be interested in the decisions, you know, looked at in the game. Because if I have congressmen playing versus if I have, if I'm looking at the military operations, I really want the military commanders playing that part. And then I want the congressmen playing a game of how, what do I want to do? What policy decisions would I want to make? How does this affect diplomatically how do we work through that between the executive branch and the in the legislative branch on decisions on going to war or how that looks and things like that so it's very exciting i'm going to throw a curveball at the two of you Uh, i i I didn't i I normally provide all my guests sort of a a rundown on some topics that i'd like to talk about i didn't bring this one up but i think you can handle it uh one of the things that i that i've been fascinated about is i've read about wargaming over the years is that sometimes when you take a look at crisis situations and whatnot and you talk to people who are uh, stock traders or you talk to people who are odds makers out in Vegas and you pit them against sometimes the experts who should know what to do, they actually do extraordinarily well. 
has has the wargaming community and the military, the simulation community, taken a look at those two uh, groups of folks and sort of studied how they make decisions when it comes to these crises type uh, decision making process? The two were uh, odds makers, yeah, well, odds makers out of Vegas, and then uh, stock so traders on on Wall Street. So, not specifically that I know of. Uh, it's an interesting uh, question. It's something that I'll go back and, and look at. I think the interesting part of this is, um, you know, uh, I would say either counterfactual or uh, they look at it from a totally different perspective. So in both cases, a lot of times they're looking at it from, um, you know, purely money right. perspective. Right. And, you know, the people that are betting the odds, you know, the, the public that bets often has emotional ties. And so they're not using the same, um, we'll say, uh, levers or uh, how they value the decision is different. And so I think that's how, how we would find the, the differences is in how they, how they make decisions is how they value different parts of the model. They're really creating a different model than everyone else does when they're, they're doing their work. Yeah. I'll also say it's kind of like the, um, the, the black swan, you know, the yeah. traditional thing where something <laughs> that you didn't think of happens. Yeah. Now it's a game changer. I, I think sometimes when you look at the odds makers or stock markets, they think of a million perturbations of things. And when something does happen that's out of the ordinary, okay, it was something that they might have barely touched on, but yes, they had a um, they had a number and odds or whatever about it happening. But when you look at the percentage threat of what really is going to happen, I, I would love to see how their approach is any different than what's happening out there. You know, anybody can say, oh, I think the moon's going to crash into the earth tomorrow. <laughs> It'll never happen, but someday it will. And now they say, look, I predicted that back in, you know, 2023. Right. So is it that they were actually predictive or were they just throwing, you know, spaghetti on the wall and seeing what stuck? But the approach, as Chad says, I think is, is a neat way to look at things on how people analyze information that they're presented and then coming up with whatever odds or solution right. they have. I think that's the key. So we're down to just uh, about five minutes uh, left in our show today. The time flies just like that. It just amazes me every week we do the show. I always try to give my guests the final word. Uh, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on this topic of simulations in wargaming or the U.S. Army War College's role in, in higher education across the United States? Uh, Cliffy, we'll start with you, and then we'll give uh, Colonel Jagman, the senior man here, the, uh, the opportunity to close out our thoughts. Well, first off, thank you very much for, for having me on. I think it's a great opportunity. Um, to leave the, the listeners, um, you know, you have probably played war games or simulations yourself. And, you know, we do it for entertainment in the civilian world outside. But recognize that uh, those skills that you use, playing Monopoly, playing Risk, you know, those things, um, analyze that and look and go, wow, I learned how to handle money. I learned how to, you know, handle decision making. Um, and so with that, it's no different in the military. We're just taking it to a, say, more refined or more involved level. Um, so again, kind of earlier when I talked about ISNES and, and presenting ourselves as the military to civilians that maybe didn't have, you know, contact with us, that we do similar things that the average citizen does. We just happen to do it in a more refined manner that focuses on, say, military operations or preventing conflict. Um, so, you know, in the end, the stuff that we've talked about, you can actually apply it to civilian life. So we're nothing special or unique. We just happen to be doing it. Um, in a military um, or policy type perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, th thanks, John. Uh, so before I leave this final part, I want to try to tie Army and Navy wargaming together a little sure. with maybe some history for, for your, re your listeners. Um, an interesting aside for me, Rear Admiral Alfred Thayer Mahan, ah, yes. renowned U.S. <laughs> naval historian, uh, credited with encouraging the use of war games for sea power, he actually adapted Kriegspiel that we talked about earlier for naval battle. And I wonder, I'll give you a challenge. Do you know where he may have learned about Kriegspiel? I do not. Well, most likely his father, Dennis Hartmahan, West Point class of 1824 and renowned American military <laughs> theorist and professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Okay. So at right, the root okay. of naval war camp gaming in some ways is Army war gaming. All right. All but right. with that, uh, I see that war gaming is a valued component of research and education and is a robust suite of, it's part of a robust suite of decision support tools, including those exercises and analysis and, and uh, simulations that defense senior leaders leverage in strategic and enterprise level decision making. So the War College uses those to provide students exposure to experiential learning techniques and these proven design decision support tools uh, for the Department of Defense. Um, and we're very uh, 
uh, glad to have this opportunity to share with you and your audience uh, today. Well, we'll have to start uh, wrapping up, wrapping it up there. Colonel Chad Jagman, uh, Mr. Ed Zukowski, uh, both from the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today. Are there any resources uh, you might highlight for our listeners so they can kind of dive in to learn more about wargaming and simulation? Uh, perhaps a, a really good website or a book that discusses this subject. Yeah, this is. A, uh, I would say that if you're looking at being a, a practitioner uh, of like a defense planner or an analyst. I would recommend Colonel Retired Jeff Applegate's work. He's the director of Wargaming at the Naval Postgraduate School, mm. but a retired Army officer. Uh, he has an excellent uh, book uh, called The Craft of Wargaming. Okay. Uh, there's also a book called uh, The Art of Wargaming by Dr. Peter Perla, uh, who was uh, a famous Navy analyst as well. Uh, Ellie, Dr. Ellie Bartels uh, uh, from the Rand Corporation. Uh, has a lengthy article on the science of war games, which is a discussion, a discussion of philosophies of science and research in games. And then the Army War College has a strategic war gaming series handbook that really covers war games if, in, if through a design, a defined process. So if you want to know about the, the steps to design and the life cycle of a, of a war game, I would use the Army War College handbook. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us today. This was a great discussion. Thanks for having us. It was awesome. And that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.